And now, business games. Welcome to a geopolitical and propagandistic season of business games, where we learn strategic and critical thinking on the examples from foreign policy and propaganda and analyze international business and international relations. So this is a second full season of business games. As strategists, we need to, if we want to know where we want to go and how to get there, we need to know where we are. And it's very difficult to do that if we're not getting the right information. So in 2022, especially uh, with um, uh, heightened geopolitical tensions and one-sided, quite often one-sided coverage of those in the uh, mainstream media, I decided to uh, do a live case study on the Ukrainian conflict uh, in order to figure out how misinformation and disinformation works. And I have a, uh, um, so to speak, a horse in this game, in a way, a personal connection, because I was born in, I was born in Soviet Union, uh, I was born on the territory of Ukraine, and even though I grew up in New Zealand since I was uh, 15, I uh, do have distant relatives and childhood friends in there. And so I've been uh, keeping up with the Ukrainian situation. And I think I have a, uh, a more nuanced uh, understanding of what's going on. And so when I see the coverage of it in, in the news, there's a, a quite a lot of cognitive dissonance for me uh, from the... So in the simplification of the situation, and I'm talking about, because I'm based in New Zealand, I'm talking about the Western mainstream media. Uh, in particular, I've been befuddled as to why there had been nobody from the mainstream networks or um, highlighting the Donbass situation. And I had to find either independent journalists or uh, journalists from the non-Western mainstream media um, in order to be able to understand what is going on. Because I believe that in order to understand the conflict, you need to understand both sides. So one such person is um, Johnny Miller, uh, who is our guest today. Hi, Johnny. Hi. How are you doing? Good. To, thank you for having me. Thank you for, for being here. So Johnny is from Press TV, which is an Iranian news outlet. And my understanding, I've started reading you this year, but from your posts and your Telegram channel and so on, my understanding is that you've been to Ukraine before. In 2014, you and, and, and you also know people on both sides of the conflict right now, or recently you had been in Donbass, but previously you had covered also the um, uh, Kiev views, so to speak. Is that correct? Yeah, so I was in, I covered Maidan in 2014, so uh, the, the, the Ukrainian revolution or coup, uh, whichever you want to call it. Uh, then I was in Donbass briefly in 2014 when the war started there. Um, and then I've been this year, in about April, I was in Kiev when the Russians had surrounded it. I left Kiev pretty sharpest because I realized I was under threat there and he, Journalists critical of the main of the of the regime is under threat, and then I spent best part of six months in Donbass. Yeah, and I've just now I've just returned to Moscow a week ago. I'm surprised you were given permission to go to Kiev, or and, and you had your uh, 
your license to to report from Kiev. Oh, I didn't have a license. I slipped in uh, without right. without um, telling them who I was working for or, or too much details. So, um, yeah, and uh, I quickly realized that I was very much under threat. I've been deported from countries in quite ugly circumstances before. Uh, there's also some a Russian journalist just killed there, apparently by a Russian airstrike. Uh, it was in April, uh, but anybody killed at the moment under sus- suspicious circumstances in Ukraine is just killed by a Russian airstrike. And um, so, yeah, I left, uh, I left there pretty sharpish. Sure. Now, I think that a lot of people had, if they were following mainstream media, obviously there's a particular view of the world, which I find is really difficult to to. To rattle, and that view of the world is obviously uh, U.S. is the paragon of virtue and democracy, and you know there's the, there's the proverbial garden, and and the rest is the jungle, as uh, oh, as the Europeans uh, recently said. So, um, but knowing how one-sided the coverage is, I started covering, I started changing my own perception of various players both uh, you know internal politics also ex- externally um and in particular the the quote unquote you know uh, rogue regimes such as iran uh, north korea cuba and so on and so forth so uh, one thing that i would like to maybe start is uh, before we get to like ukrainian um conflict proper let's go back to maybe your background in journalism, how it started and what brought you to Press TV? Like what was your journey, your education and why did you end up working for for an Iranian outlet? Well, I got into politics, I guess, in my early 20s, um, reading Noam Chomsky and uh, Manufacturing Consent, my my, uh, sort of book that really made me realize how uh, corrupt uh, the world was and it's not really as we're being told. I got into um, working at a production company in London. Uh, so I started uh, doing shows for them, producing shows. They had uh, presenters, Andrew Gilligan, Nick Ferrari, some famous figures in Britain. Then I started producing shows for them. Um, I did a lot of work for them around the world. Then I started working for other channels. I had some work on the BBC, Vice, uh, some French, French Channel, various uh, international networks around the world. and. Uh, reported from Syria, Libya, um, the genocide of Rohingyas in Burma, many African conflicts. Then I hadn't worked for Press TV for many years. But then when the Ukraine war started, I promised myself after Syria, no more wars, because it's hugely, it's hugely stressful and uh, could be damaging to your mental health and all the rest of it. But when U- Ukraine started, you know, I, I reported from Libya and Syria, and I saw those countries uh, be destroyed. Um, and I knew the same thing was going to happen, st- happen with, with Ukraine. And I felt the madness was getting closer, so to speak. So Press TV called me up and said, do you want to go? So I said, uh, yeah. And I spent most of uh, this year uh, doing just that. Where did you study? Where did I study? I, I'm from Scotland originally. So I, uh, Scotland until I was 11. And then uh, my mother took me to Australia. She's Australian. So I went to high school in Brisbane. Um, and then I studied uh, drama, actually, at Manchester University. Right. So I never actually studied to be a journalist, right? Because I what what um, what I'm wondering recently is what's happening to the journalistic integrity and asking you know asking questions from different sides and so on and so forth. Because I just like I kind of don't really see it uh, anymore, and I don't know whether that's uh, 
self-selection or whether that's like, like what is what is the um, kind of incompetence and what is the malice uh, part of it? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, it's so I want to. Yeah, it's interesting that the few journalists I've met here, the independent ones, I won't mention names because I don't want to make mistakes. Uh, but I think the ones that I met haven't actually gone to journalism school, and some of the, they're some of the best journalists. Um, I think you know what do you, uh, you know people think that journalists, the sort of romantic images of journalists, is that they they go out and they tell the truth and they stand up to power. The reality is that most don't. The reality is that most know how to lie, how to rework a story, and most work for. Uh, powerful interests or governments, so they're not putting uh, truth to power at all. And so, um, be, yeah, j being a journalist, just like any profession, you know, I don't know too much about what what what, what you're doing, but um, there's a lot of corruption in any profession, and uh, there's just as much corruption in, in any other. And some would say that t the state of journalism now is worse than it's ever been, but I think there's always a tendency to say, oh, it's always worse. You know, you look back and it's, it was better in the past. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not old enough. It was quite corrupt in the past as well. But, um, you know, Noam Chomsky and the great Australian journalist John Pilger uh, recently came out and said they've never seen a war like Ukraine in which there's been more propaganda. And that's saying something coming from these guys who've reported since Vietnam. And of course, Noam Chomsky wrote the book on propaganda in Western societies, manufactured consent. And so why is there so much propaganda in this war? Uh, I mean, I was I remember being in, in Donetsk and I try not to criticize particular mainstream outlets just because it's not worth my, you know, I've got a lot of targets on my back at the moment. I don't want to make more enemies. But um, when a, a, a building near me was destroyed and living under the shelling of Donetsk, which I'm sure we'll come to, is, 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 is crazy. It's, it's very difficult. And one of the buildings that was hit and I turned on and a major news outlet had published a photo of this building and said this has been hit by Russia. And it wasn't hit by Russia, it was hit last night by Ukraine. And just when you're living under the shelling, it, it makes you angry. And you're just, it's, you talked about cognizant uh, uh, dissidents before. That, that's what that is there. When you're there, you're reading here the complete, a complete lie that you're living under the shelling. And it's just, it's, just, it's just unbelievable. And that's just an example of just how much lies and propaganda there's been in this conflict. And I think that the amount of propaganda required is, is how much needed to fool a population, especially now in Europe and the West. People are being asked to drop their living standards, to pay, pay high energy bills. So in order to persuade people to support a war, which does have a peaceful solution, and you're going to ask them to drop their living standards, you need a hell of a lot of propaganda. I think that's why we're seeing that right now. I I have to as a devil's advocate I have to basically say well okay uh, yes I and and I I don't disagree with you I agree with you that there is a lot of uh, corruption in journalism but uh, you know people especially from the West would say well hold on a second well Iranian TV cannot be that free yeah listen <laughs> right so, so I well explain how 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 that kind of works that you know there's some fantastic main um, journalists in in all major channels you know you're in in Britain there's the Daily Mail I don't know if you know the Daily Mail it's it's hold up to be the racist, anti, you know, pro, anti immigrant, racist people. They do some, some fantastic work. And actually, interestingly, look at Fox News now. Fox News, well, Tucker Carlson, he does the more, most critical um, things on Ukraine that you'll see. So it's complicated. If you want to know what's going on inside Iran, um, I wouldn't necess necessarily trust entirely Iranian media, although I wouldn't trust Western media either. Um, you know, I was asked, um, to go to Syria 
many years ago by Press TV. I refused because I knew Press TV was had a, had a strong bias there uh, in terms of support for the government. I actually went to Syria later when ISIS took took over power. And I thought anybody who's fighting ISIS is there. So when watching any kind of media outlet, it's important to recognize their bias. Um, and I went with, uh, so I've turned down stories of Press TV before, which I felt they might try to, um, I was asked to do a, a, a piece on the BBC for them. And I've got lots of criticism of the BBC, but I've also got some, some love for the BBC. And I, I refused because I knew that they would try to make it more hard line. So it's like any any channel. In, in um, Ukraine, uh, Press TV allow me to, they, they always allow me to report completely freely. I'll give you another example of, um, I did a lot of work in the Rohingyas, the genocide of Rohingyas in Burma. Now, almost no uh, uh, channel covered that, or they didn't cover it very much. Why? Because it was no one's interests. The Americans didn't care. The Europeans didn't care. The Russians didn't care. The Chinese didn't care. Press TV cared. Why? Because they care about uh, minority Muslim groups getting massacred. And so they do some fantastic work. There's been some journalists killed uh, working for Press TV, some fantastic people working for them. Uh, and they cover really, really important stories. And they report stories that nobody else is, 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 uh, is covering a lot of the time. And that's the same, same with Donbass. As I think you're going to come on to, there's almost, well, there's been no British or American, almost no Western reporters in Donbass. Um, but I, I've been able to go there. Uh, Press TV, and they originally sent me to Kiev, but I couldn't go there. And if you watch Press TV, they do give both sides. But most of my reporting does tend to be, does some come across as more pro-Russian, if you like, just because the stories around me are Ukrainian war crimes. Um, yes, I mean, my, my suggestions to anybody, yes, absolutely, don't. Press TV has its biases like anybody else, but it also does some really, really good work. And I think to get a proper understanding of the world, it's important to look at different sources. Um, and yeah, that explains it. I, I agree as uh, having read a lot about, I'm an economist, so having read a lot about uh, behavioral economics and uh, psychology and economics, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's proven that people are biased. You know, there's not a single person who is unbiased. So whether we have hidden biases or, um, uh, you know, obvious biases, like there are a lot of biases we're not even aware of. So from that point of view, I totally agree and with you. You need to be able to, like, go out of your way and even uh, go look at things that people report who you disagree with exactly, and then compare and then think about it. And just to say also that the propaganda works so much of the time, not by outright lying. Sometimes it is out by lying. Press TV, for example, the Iranians, they cover the Yemeni war a lot. They, they, don't, they don't lie. Doing it. You don't need to lie. You just have to tell the truth, but they cover it, whereas nobody else covers it. And it's the same here in Donbass. You know, I take pride in my reporting, very honest reporting. And any mainstream reporter who is here was in, in Donbass, like I would, they would be reporting the same thing I am. And so they just don't send their reporters. So propaganda works a lot of the time where you send your reporters and who you speak to. They don't necessarily openly lie. They just ignore things or just don't send their reporters to places that have inconvenient mm -hmm. uh, ideas. Well, and that's uh, and that's the thing. So that's my next question. Uh, there are obviously no foreign no foreign journalists from major networks in Donbass. I mean, that's that's glaringly obvious. How easy slash difficult is it to get a press accreditation and actually go to Donbass? Because people could say, well, you know, maybe they're not let there, right? Maybe, maybe the Russians don't let them there. Yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, in 2014, there were lots of mainstream uh, Western reporters there. I, I know I was there. 
I spoke to them and even they, most of them that I spoke to admitted there was clearly a pro-Russian majority back in 2014. Um, but now, since uh, February, since the invasion, there has been, there's been, there has been a, a French, there's been a couple, sometimes there's French, there is a, there is, there is a full-time French radio mainstream journalist, I think. Uh, there's German, Italian, French have occasionally been there. So there's no doubt they are allowing some in. Um, I've contacted the Russian uh, government, I've already said this publicly, um, told me that no British or American outlet had ever had even applied to go in. Now, that's you can believe them or not. I do tend to believe that. And if that's true, that that's quite incredible because, and there hasn't been a single British or American media outlet there. If that's true, then that would, that would imply there's been some kind of collusion between all of the mainstream media outlets to not even send somebody there, which is quite staggering. That's if that's, if that's true, um, whether they've applied or not. And they have allowed French, German, Italian in. So it's why is there no British or American particularly? And, and of course, Britain and America are the, are the most uh, gung-ho in supporting um, arms to Ukraine. There's also, they are, they, are, they are also increasingly not allowing some journalists in. <laughs> Interestingly, they told me they're increasingly not allowing some independent journalists in simply because of logistics, that they have cases before in which independent journalists get there. Turns out they're not getting paid and they can't get out of the country and they ask the government for help. Uh, they'll also be worried about spies. Uh, many journalists are spies. Uh, we know that historically. And so that'll still be the case today. Um, some Russian journalists have complained to me that they're not being given accreditation at the moment. Some Western journalists will be on a blacklist. So it's complicated, all, all of that, that, that question. But my feeling is that there's, there's definitely been an attempt, without doubt, for mainstream outlets to not send reporters there in order to not hear uh, the truth of what's going on in the Donbass. Have you come under pressure from the Donbass authorities to report things in a certain way or not report things? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, or by the Russians. Absolutely not. No, there's absolutely none of that. that it generally doesn't work like that uh, in any kind of institution, even if you work for a mainstream outlet. Or for, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, that's, that's totalitarian dictatorship tactics, which, you know, It, oh, it, that's that's what everybody says Russia is. Yeah, there's obviously no, I tell you, I tell you what it is, but this, this it's Russia is exactly is not the only country I've been to that I felt there was kind of a police state was Syria. Actually, I spoke to it. Syria under Bashar Assad was a bit more police statey that you had to be a bit careful. People are a bit scared to speak on the street. Russia, no one's scared to speak yeah. on the street or on, on Donbass or what there is. Have, I was thinking this the other day: Have I self-censored, self-censored um, anything? And that's an interesting question because, you know, you, you rely on the authorities there for your press accreditation. You know, you're not worried about getting killed and that, but for your press accreditation, yeah. If I was to be running around stories, writing negative stories, would they renew my accreditation? They're fighting a war. They probably don't. Do you know what I mean? So it's not as plain mm -hmm. simple as that. Yep. Have I self-censored? Yep. I don't know. But no, they don't. I mean, I just, yeah, no, they don't force or anything like that. Okay. Have you heard, and I'm not sure how, I haven't been able to necessarily, no, I think it's a genuine story. The uh, When the Russians uh, left Kherson and the Ukrainians came in, uh, there were a lot of uh, foreign journalists, and apparently they were uh, shooting and uh, certain things that the Ukrainians didn't allow, and they actually pulled uh, accreditations from 
like a dozen uh, is that's a genuine story right and they then so that actually happened that, that's what i've heard i mean it's difficult for me to comment on that so but that's yeah. i was i mean i actually tweeted yeah. uh sort of learning my lesson not to tweet predictions because they never turn out to be right and i thought that all these mm. western journalists would come in there and write stories but actually it turns out they weren't allowed in because and that, and that shows you mm. the level of cover-up of the extremism in ukraine that even friendly outlets are not yeah. being allowed to work freely and i've heard that there is a lot of difficulties for journalists to work in Ukraine, much more than in Donbass, I feel. Mm. Um, in Donbass, I feel completely free to, 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 but the only thing is check, but we need, you know, not filming checkpoints or certainly certain military structures near the front line, which is obvious. So when you go to the front line, not to show buildings, uh, sure. but things like that, military are obvious sensitive. And it's interesting, whenever the Ukrainians do hit, occasionally they actually hit a military target, then it's difficult to film it. Uh, but that's once again, just for strategic region reasons. Um, but yeah, I think journalists are finding it hard to report in Ukraine, uh, Ukraine. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Um, what was your original motivation back in 2014, you know, to go to, were you also with press TV back then or covering Maidan or with somebody I else? I think that was press TV. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that just started. That was a big story. Maidan. So yeah that was a big big story it was interesting i didn't cover all of it but uh yeah it was interesting i remember being with my ukrainian translator a young woman and we went down to maidan square and she was with her mother and her mother was proudly waving the ukrainian flag above the crowd and her uh, my translator said to me what do you think of all of this and i looked around and uh i said this is not going to end well um You know, I didn't predict the war and everything, but you just knew that this revolution or coup was not really that genuine. You know, you saw the Western money and one Ukrainian told me that she knew it was going to succeed when she saw the portaloos be installed. Uh, and she saw that uh, all this money had been coming in. You knew the right wing element was there. And you just felt, you know, and you, and you learn things after covering, because I've covered many Uh, revolutions, protest movements, some have succeeded, some haven't around the world. And you get to understand, you know, that what's genuine, what's not, the, machina the machinations behind what's going on and whether it's from the people, whether it's from money, all the rest of it. And it just got that sense that this was not a good idea. And now look at the country. So tell me some... Uh, tell me some markers uh, that, that you're seeing, uh, you know, some patterns. Uh, like how how do you tell whether that's genuine or whether there is something behind it? I think you've, you've got to look at the the foreign involvement first of all. Um, you, you know whether a movement is is genuine. You just the the foreign involvement is a heavy indicator of of whose of of whose interest is this protest movement. Um, being done and so when you saw the the eu leaders come to the streets the the money the american money you think well is the, you know the, this is clearly the americans and the europeans are wanting this to happen so why are they wanting this to happen um you know the, the protesters kept saying we look at russia and russia's a poor country we look at europe that's a rich country well therefore we want to be with europe and that's kind of the basis of their economic understanding that well they're rich so we'll go with europe And realizing that the European Union doesn't necessarily bring wealth to any country that, that joins up. It's more of an exploitative organization, a neoliberal capitalist organization. Uh, 
Um, and when you saw the American European money driving this revolution, without that, it wouldn't have got anywhere. And so that's also why you realize that if this was a genuine uprising by the people, they shouldn't need that much American European money. It should be much more genuine. And I think, first of all, in terms of revolutions, protest movements, they have to be genuine from the people to be in the people's interests. Um, and there were doubts over that. Um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. I'm yeah. rambling about. No, it's uh, good. I'm looking up. There's a. Um, I'm just going to look up quickly and uh, tell the name. In um, there's been there is an article uh, published on uh, our world from the United Nations University uh, website. Uh, which says, what do the World Bank and IMF have to do with the, with the Ukraine conflict? Uh, and uh, basically, an economist there did a breakdown of, um, uh, of the lead up to the conflict and the actual, uh, the, the actual economics behind the, the so-called EU you know, deal and the Russian deal and basically said that the uh, Russian deal was by far the best uh, for Ukraine. So this is actually one thing that Yanukovych and um, I believe, um, who was the Prime Minister back then, Azarov, maybe. Uh, so, a uh, Russian deal would have given them a 33% discount on the on the Russian gas, and uh, would have given them uh, quite a significant loan at really good conditions. Whereas the uh, IMF and the EU deal would have just uh, given a a fairly um, exploitative loan, which is what it, what ended up happening. And they also um, enforced reforms that would benefit foreign holdings of Ukrainian agriculture, which again is what happened. So Ukraine had not, not benefited from this at all over the past eight years. You just saw exactly. um, yeah, kind of a worsening economic situation. So exactly. it was sold very well uh, to the to the protesters. Yeah. Um, and there was some genuine there was some genuine discontent with uh, with Yanukovych. Uh, but you know, just this particular thing. There's again clearly there was something for the benefit of Ukraine, and that was not the EU deal. Absolutely, yeah. And it's easy to do that selling. You just have to look at Western Europe, and Western Europeans generally are richer than your average yep. Russian. So it's yep. for a sort of simple person. I don't want to be rude. Uh, it's a very easy kind of sell. Sure. Who do you want to be with, Ukraine or Russia? Yeah, <laughs> that, was just, that was the basic. That was the selling. And 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 the I think this the the uh, the stupidity and the <laughs> non gen uh, you know not being genuine um, is is that you know if you just join the EU you'll be living like a German. Exactly. You know that's 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 exactly. not going to happen exactly. because uh, exactly. Ukraine is a massive country of really poor people and uh, for the, you know to get like that's anyway. Yeah. So. Um, the I was, you know, to where are you from in Ukraine? Actually, I was just interested. South. Where are you from? South. South. Uh, between between so, Kherson and Odessa. Okay, right. So I'm I'm from a Russian-speaking um, yeah uh, part. Yeah. Uh, the uh, we just to wrap up that uh, or to add to what you were saying about uh, you know there being um, foreign. A journalist in Donbass way back when. I was um, looking at the coverage of the situation and and the coverage of the neo Nazis in particular. Back in 2014 and 2015, there had been quite a lot of articles 
from uh, BBC, The Guardian, New York Times, and so on and so forth that that I would consider to be you know halfway uh, balanced. And they like there were a lot of articles that were raising the problem about the uh, the neo Nazis. Um, there is um, a a good um, spotlight uh, from BBC, uh, like five or seven minutes on easily searchable on youtube about the there's a fan- fantastic time magazine uh, short documentary hmm? guardian so, fantastic so, guardian short documentary so all um, all of these yeah. happened all of these happened and in fact uh even uh, even at the beginning of the february so at the um early february new york times posts an article saying uh, with the title um or, or the heading uh, or the subheading that says Ukrainian ultranationalists are not only dangerous for Russia; they could easily destabilize any peace deal that uh, that could, you know, otherwise be possible. Uh, so basically, they're talking about the dangers of Ukrainian ultranationals. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then uh, three months later, New York Times posts a tweet saying that Ukrainian neo Nazis are just a figment of Russian imagination. So. Uh, it's it's unbelievable. You cannot have these two things uh, coming from the same. Exactly. The the other thing is, I found an article which which I use, and I've looked at oof, a dozen articles just just through the time, just to see how the narrative changed. And there's, it's it's really it wasn't even a smooth change, right? It's 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 really uh, quite quite a dramatic change. So way back in 2014, again, New York Times was writing that uh, due to Ukrainian, um, uh, so Kiev forces. Um, action, uh, there were, you know, up to 1,000 civilians dying per day, which was pushing, which was creating a lot of uh, negative feelings in Donbass and was pushing uh, civilians from Donbass to pick up the arms and join the militia to in order to protect their homes. Uh, and they, they also uh, wrote in that article saying that um, even if Ukraine is able to capture and hold on to the towns uh the reconciliation could be you know there there's there's so much um what do they call it not animosity anyways there's was basically so much animosity that yeah. that had been built that reconciliation will take a very long time now mm. if you take that and that's what they were writing and and, and fast mm. forward for eight years and you go well after eight years of this like what do you think yeah like what 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 do you think would happen so to me uh all all of this is um it, it's a civil war first yeah right it's ukrainians killing ukrainians and yeah. that had been happening for eight for eight years yeah and uh I, I, it, it's uh, if we take that new york times which the, that article is fairly balanced uh it, it it is clear that you know which army went to whose house started shooting and then people you know living in those houses started uh, defending themselves yeah i i, I it, and, <laughs> and here we are so i don't i don't know why well what what don't i know why the media has changed or? yeah well no i guess i do what i what i don't actually let, let let me put it let me put it different i fully understand why the media has changed Right, I fully understand that it, it's just this one-sidedness is so glaring that there is no other explanation other than there is a concerted effort amongst well certain Washington elites, the London elites, 
some Europeans, even though the Europeans got screwed out of this, I, I, I believe there's only yeah. one beneficiary of this conflict, and that's not Europe. Um, and uh, but they wanted a uh, what looks like a you know a distraction to to bring Russia to heel, basically. And it's understandable why the machine had been switched on. You know, the, the propaganda machine had been switched on so yeah. much. But what is so so that's all explicable. What is really incredibly um, scary, I think, is how easy it is to convince people. Like even if you have the same outlet saying something and then all of a sudden saying something else. Like that's easy. It didn't take me that long to to find it. It's all it's all out there. And if we're thinking that right now, obviously, as soon as you say anything against the, the mainstream view, then all of a sudden you're a Putin is agent, right? And Putin yeah. apologist and whatever, Russian propagandist. Well, by the same logic, the uh, New York Times of 2014, 2015, all the way up to February this year, was also a Russian apologist and or Putin apologist and so on, because they were reporting a more or less balanced story. So so that's sorry, I'm renting, but but I guess, I guess so I'm not really Yeah, I mean I think I think it's I scary. Think, I think the reason the reason it is scary, and the reason they do it is because it works. Yeah. You know, you you and I spend most of our time, I suspect, talking to people who understand politics or who are interested in politics. Most people don't. Most people want to get on with their lives. You know, I've got a friend. That's in, true. Uh, just like most of my friends aren't really political. Uh, some of my friends really disagree with what I'm doing here, to be honest. Uh, I have a friend in America, and I spoke to him uh, some time ago, and I said to talk to him about the extremism and the Nazis. And he said, oh, but they've joined the uh, Ukrainian army now, so they're no longer Nazis. And I said, well, well so they suddenly stopped being Nazis. So this is, this is, this is the product of exactly what um, you're talking about. And that this, this, it's very clear to us that the media, and you, you put it a good, you put it, you put it well saying the machine has been turned on because it really has been turned on. I say there's some fantastic mainstream journalists in the mainstream, but it's been turned on as soon as, soon as February started um, to extreme propaganda of just one side only whitewashing of Nazis, which I find one of the most shocking things. You know, my translator in Donbass is Jewish. And I say to her, um, you know, how does a Jewish, how do you feel about um, the Azov battalion? And she lives in, she's from Don, uh, Donetsk, lived there for generations. Um, and so she knows what it's like. She said, well, I knew people like that existed, but we couldn't, we couldn't believe, we, the Jewish community of Don, Donetsk, couldn't believe that the European governments would support them. And that's what I find so shocking, that most European children are taught about the Holocaust at school. And yet when there's Nazis again, we not only fund and arm them, we whitewash them. That for me shows that there's just the, the um, mendacity and the, the corruption in our society. But that's what you're talking about, the, the machine being turned on. It really has been turned on to extreme in that now, you know, there's huge parts of the East and the South who supports the vast majority in Donetsk, for example, they support Russia, you know, and that's a lot of my work has been about just trying to get that message across. Um, and how that's because if, you, if people understand that Ukraine is, is bombing its own civilians in Donetsk and it has been doing since 2014 and the vast majority of their support Russia, then you can realize, well, there is a peace to be had, that there is borders to be redrawn if we listen to people there. And this, these facts are not be, are just being cut out because the, the mainstream media wants to persuade people the only way to end this war is to keep sending weapons. That's the only way to end it. And that's why you have this extreme propaganda. And unfortunately, it works. I don't know what the current um, opinion polls are still about support for this policy in Europe. I think it's still over, still a majority, I think. So it works with most people. That's unfortunately why, it's, why it happens. Well, that's the scary bit. 
that is really that is really scary because to me uh the the only uh the only i mean a we know that the peace agreement had been on the table in istanbul in the in the very first month of the conflict so basically russians and ukrainians did agree to to stop then boris johnson comes to kiev and and this whole thing is scuttled right and then the rhetoric is uh, well no more you know no no more peace okay then what are we doing are we fighting until the last, last ukrainian and this is where I, I, I go as uh, I'm not necessarily pro-Russia. I'm, I'm definitely against Zelensky uh, because I think he is. But that's, you know, not, not because uh, like I came to it kind of hating Zelensky. I knew him as an actor, right? And as a comedian, um, like he was fine. Um, the, but uh, the, there are two things that stood, stood out to me. One is uh, him closing the borders to, uh, to men. So to not allow any Ukrainian male over fighting age to leave. To me, that immediately says that uh, they were afraid that without it, basically everybody would have left. And and in turn, that to me says that that Ukrainian men, by and large, not all of them, but by and large, they don't think of this as an existential war or, or even you know defending their country. Um, because if they did, they would have, uh, fought on their own and you wouldn't need to close the borders. If you're closing the borders, forcing your own civilians and then, you know, force forcefully mobilizing them and, and sending them to the front line, that's to me is not normal. You should be saving your civilians and not forcefully sending them to, to their death. That's so, an interesting point. Yeah, if, if, if this was just an all-out Nazi invasion, for example, of a Hitler-like figure... Would they have had? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's so that to me was the uh, uh, the the major warning side num- number one from the very first uh, days of the of the conflict that said that uh, hold on a second, that's not you know that's that's uh, that's not how it's portrayed, right? The second the second thing, and again, this is where talking to people and there are people I I talk. Like there are people in Ukraine who hold all sorts of opinions, obviously. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you'll you'll know this better than I do as Ukrainian. But when I was in Kiev, I went around as my helper, I should say. There, she took me around a bomb shelter and she pointed out they're pro-government, they're not. They're pro-government, they're not. And most um, people I speak to in Donbass, they say they've got family and friends in Ukraine. Um, many people don't want to do a, a televised interview with me because they, for that reason to get them sure. in trouble. But there's a huge, you'll know this better than me, there's huge amount of, particularly in Odessa and the likes, but even in Kiev, of pro-Russian people or Absolutely. certainly people who do not support Zelensky. I'm interested to know the real figures of how popular this war is. It would be in, polls on both sides, frankly, are not believable. No one, yep. But it'd be interesting. Um, I mean, in, in Odessa, what... Do you, know, do you have a better idea of, of how many... And it, it's it's very base to say pro-Russian, pro-Kiev. I was in Berdyansk in the Zaporozhye region. I asked people about 25% openly pro-Russian. 20, this is Russian-controlled territory this, they've taken since February. Mm-hmm. 25% are pro-Ukrainian. Some asking for my British press credentials mm-hmm. before answering. And 50% of people just wanted peace. They have Russian family, Ukrainian family. Th- that's what I'm getting. Fans, just want yeah, peace. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that, that's so what in, I got. So in Odessa, I was, what's the kind of vibe, do you think? 
don't don't know. Uh, I I think that, and also uh, there's been a lot of um, uh, outright brainwashing over the past eight years. Uh, Odessa was pretty much, uh, you know, like eighty percent pro-Russian. Uh, I would right. say. I mean, it's not a Ukrainian city. I mean, Odessa is not is Odessa. It's it's like it's a, it's a unique uh, city in and of itself, uh, but uh, it's certainly not a a pro-Ukrainian city. But uh, now there there's maybe. Look, what I've heard is this. Um, you say 25. I've, I've heard like, you know, 2020. And then the 60% in between really don't care. They just want to get along with their lives. They want to, uh, uh, you know, uh, raise kids, have a job. That's that's it. Yeah. And honestly, they wouldn't care one way or the other if if they, uh, who, who they would want to uh, to live under. Some people, yeah. uh, some people even say like, if China comes, they would be fine. Like, if they give us a, a decent uh, standard of living, like, fine. Like, who cares? <laughs> um, so, so that's, um, I think that's the tragedy. So that's that's why I would even say uh, the, you know, that that's that's exactly the reason why prolonging this war is is just creating a humanitarian catastrophe. It's like if you are pro-Ukrainian yeah. people. You're not pro Zelensky. Zelensky does not represent Ukrainian people. Zelensky represents yeah. Zelensky, and and quite often by the looks of it, foreign interests. If you want, so so arming Ukrainian government is not a good idea. If you are pro humanitarian, uh, yeah. forcing them to the uh, both sides to come to the table and and agree something is the best thing for Ukrainian people. Yeah. I mean, in terms of working as a journalist, I mean, when I was in Kiev for a few days, I I did quickly realize what the hell am I going to film here? Because in Kiev, there wasn't really any Russian strikes. Very difficult to speak to people. People would be terrified. In Kiev, I occasionally find somebody who's pro-Ukrainian. They're not scared to speak. Um, Of course not. You know, know, yeah, I mean... Uh, In Kiev or do you mean in Donbass? No, in Donbass. Donbass. Because you said in Kiev, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry, in Donbass, they're not scared to speak. You know, once there was a, a, one of the bomb sites, people walking around in disbelief and someone was there going, oh, this is Putin. And everyone just started looking at her like she's the crazy person in the village. Mm-hmm. And some people started shouting at her, but nothing's going to happen um, to her. But in Kiev, if you're one of these people who are if you're critical of Zelensky, if you're, certainly if you're pro-Russian, if you say anything pro-Russian, you're likely your head smashed in mm-hmm. or arrested or killed. But even if you criticize uh, Zelensky... Or, or sell a tape to a, to a poll. Exactly. Well, absolutely. And, you know, that's why I'd be interested to know how many people, but it's impossible for any journalists to find that. Um, very difficult for journalists to find that, and, and, or if, even if they wanted to. And how many Ukrainians, maybe, maybe you have a better idea, just really want, that's some of my reporting, talking about how so many Ukrainians who aren't being heard want peace. They don't want to fight Russia. They want Zelensky to go to the peace negotiation the table. I'd be interested to know how many Ukrainians want to go to the to, to negotiate rather than fight. The uh, what I understand is that um, Ukrainians w- w- who are living uh, closer to the front want negotiation. Ukrainians who are not impact, who are like in Western Ukraine, they're not that impacted. They're they're a bit more hawkish, right? Because they've got nothing. They they've got also, uh, yeah. much less to lose. Uh, they they don't have a skin in the game. Yeah, and also it's generally more pro-Russian next near the front lines. That is correct. That is. That is and correct. One of the things, I mean, living in Donetsk, which the outline outskirts is just just the front lines on the outskirts, it's an incredibly dangerous city. I mean, if you're in in Donetsk, 
you are essentially on the front line of a war zone and it's it's as dangerous on walking the streets to the shop as it is on the front lines in Donetsk. In Kiev and Lvov, it's not, you're not really in danger. Um, I mean, the Russian strikes are against energy infrastructure. I'm not sure if they've killed civilians there. It's very difficult to know. But it's, you're basically living in a safe city in Kiev and in Lvov. You're not in danger of getting blown up, really. Um, so that's partly the reason as well. Yeah, uh, you're to- so a couple of points there. First of all, um, I d- I don't because I cannot run a survey, right? I mean, I can talk to to my contacts there, um, but I cannot run a survey exactly for the reason that uh, that you described. Like nobody would tell the truth. Um, the closest I, uh, you know, the closest thing that I would come up with. Is, is the surveys that were done uh, before uh, February 24. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one survey uh, was, you know, when Putin last year in 2021 wrote an, an article um, uh, saying that uh, Ukrainians and Russians are one, one people, um, the Ukrainian uh, TV ran a survey and discussed it, or some, some research center in Ukraine ran a survey and discussed it um, because the president back then said, well, it was Zelensky, said, oh, we're definitely not one people. And then they're in a survey asking people, like, what, what do you think? 41% of Ukrainians agreed with Putin or disagreed with Zelensky, said, no, no, we are one people. And that's 41% in Ukraine in 21, which obviously yeah. excludes Donbass and excludes right. the Crimea. And so because if you did include Donbass and Crimea, it would have been over 50 yeah. As you can imagine, that was totally skewed towards Southeast. So in the Southeast, there was the majority, it was like yeah. 65%, 70%. Uh, but even, even around Lvov, uh, there were 20% of people who yeah. agreed with, with that one, um, uh, you know, one people uh, thesis. So, so that's one kind of indicator. And another indicator is um, obviously all the all the things like who voted for Yanukovych and um, uh, uh, way back in uh, you know before 2014 uh, and various things in 2014. By all accounts, Maidan was the minority, like it was a large minority, but there were there was a minority movement. Uh, Anti-Maidan actually was a majority movement, but uh, Maidan people got to, to weapons first. Um, and then they, you know, basically forcefully kind of captured the plus, as, as, as we discussed, they were supported. And, I, and I, I, like it's one of my best childhood friends who, who stayed in Ukraine all this time. But, you know, as a qualifier, like his, uh, he works for, and his wife works for US government, so. Nice. Um, so I asked him, what do you think of the, um, of the situation? Explain to me the situation. And he said, well, Maidan was a popular movement, uh, but, uh, you know, Russia provoked, uh, the separatist separatism in, um, Donbass. And I, 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 I said to him, like, that, that, like, if you believe that Russia provoked separatism in Donbass, why don't you believe that U.S. provoked Maidan? Like, because it's yeah, it's sure. it's a completely symmetric, you know, argument. If you see a foreign involvement in the anti-Maidan, uh, which to me is actually a reaction to Maidan, because it's clearly Maidan was first. Uh, so, uh, yeah. so, so, so something and it's, started. And it's also, it's also not clear. I mean, uh, it's it's not clear how much the Russians helped. 
Donbass. There's, there's, I, it, is a, it is actually a conspiracy theory, and it may well be true in terms of militarily. There's no evidence Russia helped militarily, certainly economically. And did, did they help military? I, they may have. It's a question I've often asked in Donbass. And I'm not just maybe a few special forces team could have could have changed the whole yeah. war. They may have, but there's no evidence. At least we have evidence on the Maidan. We know the money that's been sent over. No, absolutely. And 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 even you know even if if we were to uh, these things did not take place at the same time. One thing took place first. The other was a reaction. So it's it's like um, there, there were people from. Crimea, who went to support anti-Maidan movement, and then they were killed by by the Maidan supporters. Mm -hmm. And so then the Crimeans basically got together and said, "Hold on a second. If we're being killed, uh, you know, we are feeling for our lives because, like, we know." So, so they asked for help. Someone say, "Well, Russia always planned." It's like really they provoked the Maidan in order to like this. This is such a convoluted well, that, story. That they, the most straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, but the most straightforward story to me is that Maidan took place first as yeah, a reaction. The, the, uh, the, Crimea asked for help. Yeah, you have, you, have, you have three elements to this war. First of all, as you say, it's a civil war between Ukrainian nationalists and the Russian-speaking population. Second of all, it's an um, attempt by Russia to secure, as it sees it, its geostrategic strategy, yeah. um, which essentially means Crimea. And thirdly, it's an attempt by NATO to damage Russian power. And so in 2014, you're seeing that the beginnings of that element. It's, the world is a chessboard. NATO took Ukraine into its orbit. And so Russia needed to respond by taking Crimea because Crimea is essential to control the Black Sea. So that's why whether Crimeans went, you're quite right in the story you just told. And I've been to Crimea talking to those activists and how they sort of started. But essentially, it was Russia who next Crimea. They took Crimea with or without Crimea is being involved. And of course, I've been to Crimea. The vast majority of people in Crimea support being part of Russia. Yep. And then in, in Donbass, that's another unique situation. Um, you know, People think about all these areas. Odessa, that's why I've been to Odessa in 2015, I think, but I don't know too much about Odessa. This is very different. Kherson and Zaporozhye are different in Donbass. There's a reason mm -hmm. you have Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic because they're too different. They see themselves as independent. Yep. They're kind of a little bit mistrustful of each other. I mean, not, not hugely, but... And people in Don Donetsk, people say they're more pro-Russian than, than Russian people. They're very proud of their Russian culture. Mm -hmm. So there's all these different elements. There's whole villages in the Kherson region which are pro-Ukrainian. Um, and in um, Melitopol, it's different. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know why? So because there's been uh, several waves of... Um, uh, of resettlement from west of Ukraine into uh, Kherson region in particular, and what typically happened over the um, you know over the uh, several hundred years since um, like late 1700s when the Russian Empire took these uh, regions from uh, from the Ottoman uh, Empire is they uh, uh, they were settling uh, them with all sorts of people, but what happened especially lately is that. Russian speakers would settle more in uh, um, uh, in the cities, like in Kherson in particular, uh, because it was there were there was shipbuilding, there was uh, other machine building, there were there were there was a university and so on and so forth. And uh, from the west of and and the workers into the into the shipbuilding yards and stuff, uh, they were uh, somehow they were mostly uh, Russian speakers, uh, while the agriculture had been uh, so the coal horses and uh, and and basically large you know farms they would be 
uh, attracting or would would I don't know whether that was like I don't know how much you know voluntary or involuntary that was but they were basically there were lo- several waves of the uh, Western Ukrainian settling there and so that's why you get um, a, a city would be a completely Russian speaking as soon as you would get out of the city you would get a sort of a um, you know a mixture of and more like a particular um, yeah, you create a version of Ukraine or sort of a mixture yeah. of Russian and Ukrainian. No, that's interesting. Yeah, in ter- in terms of in Don- Donbass uprising, I mean, what I'd say to people is that whether there was Russian involvement militarily or not, and it's difficult to know. I <laughs> said so there is no evidence. I kind I wouldn't be surprised if there was a bit, but it's important to recognize it's a it's a genuine uprising of the people there. I mean, I've I've spent six months there speaking to people. It's interesting. I'll give you one example. I spoke to one um, uh, Donbass guy there. Explain to me interestingly how it happened. So he started protesting against Maidan when it happened. And he was ordered, the, the, the local police and G, um, SBU, intelligence agency, were ordered to arrest these protesters. But the thing is, in Donetsk, most of the police and the SBU were pro-Russian. So they refused to arrest these people. And that's how a civil war starts. And so when uh, the, the Ukrainian tanks, were, there was these, this uprising, the Ukrainian tanks were sent to Domniaks. People got in the way, literally just without weapons, got in the way and stopped them coming. Then they started shelling uh, Donetsk and people were just outraged. I mean, I was there in 2014 and I've, I've lived under the shelling myself. Let me tell you, it's crazy. And people, especially in a new area, sometimes I'd move house to a new area, which I thought was safer. And then that would get bombed. Bombed missiles right outside my front door. And to be bombed by your own government, it's a really crazy I mean, I was there in 24 and people couldn't believe it. Men with weeping, with tears in their eyes. I can't believe they're going to kill us. It's really, they're trying to murder you. And so then you've got all these miners, 4 million people in Donbass, miners, tough people as well, you know, um, taking up weapons. And I've spoken to these soldiers, crazy times. I spoke to, and there were some foreign um, volunteers as well, many from Russia. And they weren't government sponsored. These are just Russian patriots. Some even from West, West particularly communists. But speaking to soldiers at that time, it was crazy. You literally had to take a better weapon off the Ukrainians. Um, they, had, they were given old weapons, whatever they could find, get to, and they'd fight the Ukrainians, take a, a base, get their weapons. So the idea that it was pumped in by Russia or lots of Russian troops, that's not true. That's, I, can, I can guarantee there wasn't lots of Russian troops. It's a genuine uprising by people there to defend their culture. Um, and that, that's, that's an important um, point to make. Knowing something about uh, Ukraine um, and, you know, having uh, been sort of growing up there, um, I believe this. I, 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 I do believe this. I remember when the change happened, uh, we had uh, a transition from, um, you know, Soviet system to kind of a, I guess, post-Soviet education system. It's still, so, but the, what, what was really... Everything was the same except for the uh, Ukrainian history textbooks, uh, which were all um, uh, imported from Canada. And uh, we would be taught the uh, Canadian version of the Ukrainian history. Um, and uh, Canada in particular is, is of interest because that's uh, there's a huge diaspora of, of Ukrainians and especially of the uh, OUN, yeah, of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, so post uh-huh. uh, Post uh, World War II, um, you know, Bandera pe- people. So, so you can imagine that there would be a particular slant to the right, uh, yeah, to sure. the um, 
although there were there were still there were even Ukrainians before that, um, but but there's also quite a lot of because uh, as you said after the Second World War, uh, the you know former Nazi collaborators were basically um, recruited to uh, and funded and organized by the likes of the CIA and MI MI six to yeah. uh, run insurgency against the Soviet Union. So there's yeah. a um, anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, for example, which uh, which was built on the with the um, own uh, with with Bandera organization as the crux of it. I spoke to and one pro Russian. I spoke, sorry, yeah. I spoke to one pro Russian from Zaporozhye, and she told me she saw all this happening years ago when she saw playgrounds starting being built with signs reading "Built with uh, United States money" or, or whatever, mm -hmm. and she saw the change happening through that. So one one key aspect for me coming from a city uh, which which is uh, you know um, I've, I've never heard Ukrainian spoken there until mid nineties. Um, we were making jokes about killing Russians just just like that just for fun you know so so these would be the jokes that would uh, that popped up in the in the nineties and would uh, walk around the school um, uh, you know schoolyard. Wow. Uh, we were taught that all our problems were from Russia. That uh, you know, we wow. were basically taught at school to hate Russia. Uh -huh. Interesting. So whereas previously we were taught that we were uh, part of yeah. one large family, uh, you know, uh, that 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 is based basically across two continents, uh, and uh, like my father backpacked. Uh, through most of Soviet Union and the Caucasus and Kazakhstan and and whatever, like in, in way back in the seventies, there was no there was no strife. They, everybody yeah. got along. Um, and then uh, you know, starting with the eighties and late eighties, and then especially after the after the change, uh, yeah. all sorts of all sorts of uh, yeah, very nasty nationalistic uh, uh, things were were amplified, and they were they were consciously amplified. It wasn't like you know because everybody's unhappy, right? I mean, there there are all sorts of things like um, the it, it, as as you you know like but but when you um, so like some Welsh dislike English, right? And and probably for good reason. Uh, but once yeah. you start amplifying something, yeah. Um, then then you can and a lot of funding there's a lot of funding as i said there were textbooks imported yeah. from from the north america uh with certain messages baked into those textbooks but it's easy to create um, that hate i mean i've got a friend in london he tells me told me he, he celebrates the death of every russian soldier um and this is a british guy i think where is this hatred of russia go? so you can see how this they're, they're playing on this this hatred of russia and there's many things that you can kind of pull out, um, you know, Soviet rule, et cetera. So you can see how hate can be stirred up. And that's really interesting what, what, what you're talking about. Yeah. Have you seen such hatred being fomented like anywhere in the history? Do you? Because I, 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 I don't know. I, I think it's unprecedented. And you quoted uh, uh, John Pilcher and... Um, Noam Chomsky, uh, of course, who said that you know that's that's like they haven't seen anything like this, and Noam Chomsky is ancient, so he's, yeah. he's seen a lot. But I don't think, like, I don't know whether that's because I'm so much interested in this conflict and I'm just you know exposing myself to a lot of stuff. But I really feel like the level of Russophobia in the world is unprecedented. Well, no, I mean, I've they were talking about propaganda uh, in this war, but I've covered ethnic cleansing in in Myanmar and in Africa. 
when people are literally hacking people to death. So I've seen that hatred and of course Nazi Germany. But yeah, so that that, that level of hatred. Um, but there's the same kind of, there's a growing, same with Iran as well. There's a lot of racism towards Iran generally. Increasingly mm. China, as China becomes the enemy. Yep. So you are increasingly seeing a level of racism towards the enemy states, which is becoming acceptable in Western liberal society. Let let me rephrase and let me specify. You're, you're totally right. I'm I'm of course like uh, part of my shame recently is is basically having you know started once I started investigating various conflicts, I realized that like even this one is not uh, it has a chance to disintegrate into a nuclear war, but um, it, it's, it's by far not even you know the second bloodiest conflict since the Second World War, right? And we get uh, we get various wars in. Um, uh, in Africa, that that took, took you know took five million people like and lasted ten years, so um, so yes, and the way that it's covered, and of course, um, I think at the very beginning when 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 the Western media were covering, it's like we can't believe like these people look like us, and then of course all the Asians and Africans and uh, and Middle Easterns were you know quite quite rightfully saying, well, hold on a second. We've well, been bombed and it was okay, but yeah. now all of a sudden the blue-eyed blonde people are doing, you know, like it's, what, there is a certain, yeah. What I will say in terms of the hatred, the, the anti-Russian hatred that's stirred up on the Ukrainian side, I mean, it's interesting you're talking about what, what happened in the schools, but this is not just, I speak to some of this about this to friends in London, they say, well, that's just war. It's not just war. Uh, in Donbass, it's fascinating. There's no hatred of Ukrainians. That, that You just don't see it. There's there's no hatred of, of this culture, of the people or anything. There's Ukrainian statues of Ukrainian poets. No one's thought to pull them down. The Kievsky district of, Donet- of Donetsk isn't being renamed. Um, there's no, I've never seen any hatred of Ukrainians. People were proud to be part of Ukraine. Most people I ask, I said, were you happy to be part of Ukraine? They said, yeah, to be honest, yeah, until 2014. Um, so there's no ethnic hatred. And same in Russia, my experience of Russia, you, you get racists everywhere. But there's no ethnic hatred of Ukrainians by, by Russians or hatred of the West, although some a little bit increasingly, but that ethnic hatred that that's been stirred up by um, by the Ukrainian side and by NATO, and one of the reasons I fear an ethnic cleansing in 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 in, um, in Donetsk is because they see these people as non-people. They see even you know your background as a pro-Russian. They see these in the Russian area as non-people. They were just sent here, so therefore it becomes I, I, okay to ethnically cleanse them, and that's how ethnic yeah. cleansing and genocide happens. I'm not even pro-Russian, right? I'm <laughs> I'm pro-Ukrainian people. So I I I just don't like. Well, I mean, I I have two principles, right? One one that I'm not gonna uh, that that I'm not gonna move from. One is I don't like Nazis, right? So when in doubt, I just don't like. I I thought that after Second World War, we've all learned that that you know generally I feel like world is not black and white, but you know outside of the non-black and white part, basically like. There's no absolute evil, but Nazis basically are, yeah. right? So I yeah. just okay, I don't like that. That's that to me is yeah. is a no go. Uh, second part is is I don't like uh, yeah, I don't like ethnic uh, hate, yeah. right? So 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 I, the, the, so I come coming from those two, and and they are related, I guess, because Nazis were you know obviously uh, yeah. ba- ba- basing their their stuff on ethnic hate. Well, hatred. I can tell so you, there's, I, there's no, there's not, there's not much reason apart from maybe some particular units in Donbass, there's nationalists everywhere. Then there's there's no reason to hate the 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 so-called separatists or pro-Russians because you don't see any of that uh, there. Hmm. 
So, uh, but yeah, so, so sort of starting from those things, I, I just uh, I, I come to the to the position. They, I read recently some people um, uh, who run a obviously it's an anonymous because they they are from Kharkov, um, and they uh, so there's a couple of people from there who run uh the uh the channel and what they wrote and they wrote like three telegram posts uh with with uh, 20 different points basically saying okay we need we need to just give our um you know position just just clearly and what they were there are many different things and you can you can uh, I, I can send you the link i can share the link with the audience as well uh, telegram does um, a fairly good translation not perfect but fairly good translation so you could just translate it basically they're saying um we don't like like we're not pro-russian we're not pro-ukrainian we we are we are pro-people we uh don't believe any propaganda we live here. We see what's happening, and basically they're saying that we 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 know that uh, the Putin government is is not is not perfect. Like there's a lot of corruption and so on and so forth. But they said what we see that the Zelensky government is doing is basically pure evil. And so if if we were to choose, it's like we don't like to be part of a pure evil. So that's a little that's a little bit my position. I come to the position of where where I don't necessarily support what Russia is doing. I'm just really against what you what, yeah, what the I mean, what the Kiev regime is doing. I see a lot of similarities with Syria. Um, in Syria, started off as a peaceful uprising uh, against Bashar al-Assad. It's difficult to know who is pro or against. Say, call it fifty fifty. I spoke to a leftist party in Jordan uh, who told me that they were peacefully protesting in Damascus against Bashar al-Assad. Um, and he was against Bashar al-Assad. And he said, as soon as it turned violent, I was with Bashar al-Assad 100% all the way because he saw that this ext- the, the, the extremists, the violence was being pumped in by outside forces, the United States and Saudi. Therefore, he was 100% support in favor of Bashar al-Assad. And um, I think why I'm using that example is similar with um, Ukraine. You can, you can dislike Russia or you're like, Russia is a civilized government. Um, it's uh, and, and it's a very popular government. Putin is very popular, and I'm sure there are many criticisms of Russia. And I'll leave that mainly to the Russians, uh, the people who live there. But the same in um, but, but but Ukraine uh, is increasingly a really nasty government. I mean, it's allied with Nazis. I mean, what kind of government allies with Nazis? And the reason it is is because they share, they cross over many of their ideologies. Even Britain isn't allied with Nazis because it's completely that ideology is completely adverse to British policy, policy and, and, and ethics. The reason they are allied to, to Nazis and they accept them is because there's an overlap of that ethnic hatred of Russians and that and that's um, um, so, yeah. So let so, me rephrase my question about the hatred. Let's let's talk specifically about Russophobia because if you if I if I look at it, uh, you know that there, there's been. And I, and I recorded, it's not up yet, but I recorded a three-hour, what ended up as a three-hour interview with um, a professor, a U.S. professor of media who specializes in war propaganda in particular. Um, I, I, I will edit it and transcribe it, and then I'll put it up. The, so he said that uh, the, this, the Russophobia, Basically, a PR campaign against Russia had been around for several hundred years. <laughs> he said it's you know it's uh, during the Soviet Union times. Uh, prior to that, it was during the um, 
Crimean War, but even going back as far as the Napoleonic Wars. So there, there's been a certain... Um, I'm, I, 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 I don't know that far back. And so the question, the question to you is because I don't, from what I know about the Cold War, even during the Cold War, the, the, there was not such a you know a, a smearing of of everything Russian as as what I see now. I mean, to the point where where there are a lot of people saying, "Oh, we shouldn't play Tchaikovsky." I mean, for fuck's sakes, like what is this? Like this this is nuts. I I don't understand what's going on. Yeah. No, no, you're right. That's even to the extent that a friend of mine says I, I celebrate the death of every Russian soldier. I mean, it's psychopathic. Psychopathic. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, we're not perhaps old enough to be able to remember too far back into the Cold War, but you're right, it's gone up another level. And I think that's because of having to persuade people that this war is in the West's interests. And so you have to, when you're fighting a war, and we are effectively fighting a war against Russia now, you have to give a reason and therefore you have to say we are those people not just the government but those people they're they're lesser than us we're allowed to kill them because they're lesser than us so that's i think that's always been in war propaganda and that's what we're seeing now to an extreme degree yeah um talk about miratvoritz what what uh what's your experience with it you've interviewed um actually a child who 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 uh uh, who ended up on Miratvoritz. I it, it's another one of those things where, you know, part of me doesn't want to believe that such a thing exists. Yeah. Uh, part of me understands full well that um uh, that that it does and what it what it does and what it's there for. And, and and yet I'm just like it boggles my mind that the West is willfully blind towards it. Yeah, I, I think it's a really important story and I, I spoke to a mainstream journalist recently I said I think you should really cover this um, because it is a, and it's kind of like incredible gaslighting that people think well we shouldn't we shouldn't cover it I think it's such an important story because you know for those people who don't know it's minute uh, but it's peacemaker it, it means it's a site set up by Ukrainian nationalists um, which docks as enemies of the state as they, they call them and it has links with the Ukrainian government it's been praised by the Ukrainian government officials previously apparently it's used at checkpoints etc to weed out enemies of the states and it uh, has hundreds of children on that list largely children's from, from Crimea and Donbass it puts their home addresses on the site and their phone numbers so it doxes them uh, whenever journalists are killed it writes liquidated over their um, photos so it's promoting people say whether it's a kill list or not that's debatable what it undoubtedly does is that it promotes violence against these people that's <laughs> categorical and and, and we, sh- we should we should say that th- there had been a lot of murders uh, sure. of of journalists especially in 2014 and 2015 sure. of Ukrainian yes, journalists yes. who showed up on that list. Yeah, so so it, it's two things. So it, that gets, gets a lot of headlines, you know, myself being on the list. You know, I wrote, did a story about a child being on the list. You know, it's quite clearly wrong to have a, putting a home address and the phone number of a child with her photos and her history of what she said. She's just a, a young 14-year-old girl writing about her experiences in war, sort of with a pro-peace agenda. And then she wrote a letter to the United Nations saying, please stop this war. And she's been put on the list. It's so clearly wrong to have this child on the list. You know, somebody turned up at her house just to wish her happy birthday. She found her address on the on the site. And so I did a story about that uh, list and in some kind of Kafkaesque nightmare, I myself was put on the list. 
Um, and so people, that's got the big headlines, people around the world, I think even Henry Kissinger was on the list, uh, some big figures. But, but for me, the most important thing is that it, the many hundreds of Ukrainians are on that list. And it essentially shuts down any criticism of particularly the ultranationalist forces in Ukraine and of the government. And that's why the list's still up. The Ukrainian government and NATO has the power to take down this list. The United uh, UNICEF, I think, has finally come out about it. Some human rights groups, once again, years ago, have come out against it. Human Rights Watch wrote about it. Um, I think New York Times has even written about it, once again, eight years ago. Not now. Now everything's been shut down. Not You can't speak about it anymore. Um, but essentially, it's an example of that extremism. And if I could make a solid argument that a website that publishes the home addresses of children and promotes violence against them is amongst or perhaps even the most serious human rights violation in Europe today. I, I can't really. That, that's the level of extremism. You know, in, in, and you said earlier you hate Nazis. Th there is evil in this world. And, and I agree with you that the Nazis and ISIS, ISIS are the other one. I mean, I've covered ethnic cleansing in Burma. I wouldn't even call the Burmese army evil. But ISIS and Nazis, they're on a different level. And putting children, doxing children, that's, that's, that, that's that level of extremism which crosses the line into just, that, that's not just United States, British warmongering. That's, that's a level of evil that, that crosses so many lines. And that, that's what Mirat Velez is for me, an example of that extremism and that Nazism, if you like, or ultranationalism. Um, and it's not being shut down because these ultra, these ultranationalist and extremist forces are useful to NATO. Uh, why? Just because it's just like ISIS were useful in, in Syria. Most Syrians didn't want to rise up and risk their lives fighting Bashar al-Assad. You know, most Guardian reading leftists or whatever, they don't want to risk their lives, but the extremists do. That's why money was pumped into ISIS and the, the moderate rebels so-called turned into ISIS because the extremists who want to fight, just like in Ukraine, most Ukrainians don't want to fight against Russia. The extremists do. And that's why you've had this pumping in of money and weapons into Azov Battalion and the ultranationalist militias, because they're the ones who want to fight Russia. Most Ukrainians don't. And that's why you have this rise of extremism. It, it, this is this is completely you know it's it's, it's surreal but it's uh, it, it's true and it of course is not is nothing new I mean we had the same in Afghanistan uh, back in the 70s and 80s and you know and then uh, in the early 90s Osama bin Laden was uh, lauded as a uh, I don't know one of the greatest humanitarians ever and, 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 so, then, of course, and so what happened ridiculous. to Al Qaeda and what happened to ISIS eventually yeah. turned on the West will we see the same thing in in Ukraine. Well, with the amount of weapons that that's there, it, it's it's uh, it's incredible. Of course, who will not suffer most likely is the U.S. Just just by the sheer fact that they 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 are quite far away. Well, they might they might have uh, some. Euro Europe is. They might, they might see an increase in far right terror attacks, but I don't think the American government really cares about um, mm. a few mass murder shootings every Pro week. Probably not. <laughs> I, I've I've um, I've read somewhere I've heard somewhere and again this is not um, I, d I don't know uh, in that interview uh, so I don't know but apparently there are uh, neo Nazis from the U S coming to to Ukraine uh, basically trying to learn how it is that Ukrainians managed to effectively you know have have a neo Nazi government uh, and and military so you know they're not only coming there for the uh, safari to kill uh, to kill Russians. They're they're coming there to train and exchange views and so on and so forth. And um, now that's, what that's, that is that was covered by mainstream before February? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That 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 used to be covered. So that's uh, uh, 
there's also a video clip of um, uh, Yevgen Karas, I think, uh, the leader of S14 uh, gang, where he is uh, giving a Q&A session and he is saying that um, uh, basically we, we love killing, we love shooting, uh, and uh, we are now so much pumped with weapons that uh, it it will be it will be a great sorrow for all of Europe after you know, yeah. like after after yeah. this. So yeah, well, uh, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's um, it, this is so weird. I well anyway. What um, what do you think of um? I had this I had this thing I came across. Maybe I'll cut it. Maybe you don't want to talk about it. I don't know. But I wanted to uh, to see. Actually, I have it's a, it's a two pronged question. One one is one I think you 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 can you can talk about. How much are you getting heat back home? Uh, like, what is the um, how are you perceived in uh, back home for your work with uh, you know covering this conflict? What do you mean by by people by just both I mean, people and the government? Yeah, I mean some of my friends. Uh, I mean, it's difficult. The work that I've been doing the last six, it's really difficult. Spending months in Donetsk, getting back from war to anybody who hasn't been in war, it's it's, it's impossible to to relate, to be honest. And you do need some support. It's difficult, to be honest. I mean, without going into uh, you know too much about myself. But um, so a couple of my friends send me messages whenever they see my work up, you know, and they're they're friends who who, who don't who know the mainstream media is bullshit. <laughs> so it's they, those friends of mine are like, Johnny, it's so amazing what you're doing. What a, what a hero you are, you know, risking your life, just nice messages you get from friends, the things you need to hear, you know, other friends of mine, I know are really judgmental and one working in Russian territory, two working for press TV and they're kind of the Western liberal type. And they, I know are judgmental and they don't send me supportive messages, which is difficult to be honest. Um, and uh yeah so it's it's different and it's yeah and on twitter you get a lot of abuse but you also get a lot of uh really supportive messages um you know and uh you know so it's it's a mixed bag really um i haven't been attacked i don't think by mainstream media yet many journalists of us are i i i, I kind of make sure that i don't cross red lines so um you know, if I ha- and I stick and very make sure my my journalism stands up. So, you know, when I'm standing on a street with bodies lying around me and you, with Ukraine as a shell, and I say Ukraine's killing its own people, it's very hard to <laughs> pull apart my journalism. <laughs> Good luck to you trying to do that. Um, and I, you know, back everything up, and I'm there, so it's very hard. And but there's certain things that I try and stay away from. Um, you know, I did a report in the drama theater in Mariupol that was bombed. And apparently, Western media said 600 people were killed there. I was there. I spoke to the people clearing it away. They told me that they've only found a few bodies. They have, they have been ordered by authorities to move brick by brick. And they're annoyed about this because there's hardly any bodies. And I did a story about where these, the figures exaggerated. Because I had eyewitnesses. I had all this. And I felt that was still, there's an argument whether it was Russia or Ukraine who bombed. Um, I don't know, to be honest. I have my suspicions. But so I'm very careful in that regard not to go to say anything or do anything mm-hmm. that it crosses a line, if you like, because then they'll they'll have a reason to attack me. But I think inevitably, the more that I carry on my work, they they might find a way to. Uh, but it's very hard to attack a journalist who's on a kill list, so to speak, who risks his life, who I hope comes across as a nice, honest person, and who backs up everything I say. So 
it's difficult to be attacked at the moment uh but yeah I don't well know. the the reason the reason of course uh why why i ask is because we do have uh some examples of of exactly this and that's with the uh uh alina lip in uh you know from from germany who i know you spoke with and also graham phillips uh who uh well i mean i've seen some of his posts uh also where i think he took issue with uh when you said that there are no uh western journalists and he was like well i've been here for you know so but um uh i said i said i i i i said mainstream someone else had a go at me that i choose my words very carefully and uh i there's some fantastic independent journalists so i'm always often to say this fantastic so i make a point of of saying that Mm. so if he took that he wasn't listening to me anyway (laughs) that's that's okay but obviously what happened to him i I think it's it's uh quite quite horrific in a way absolutely Um, absolutely i mean sanctions absolutely absolutely it's it's yeah so so that's so it's what sanctioning does do to you. It closes your bank account, takes your assets, it basically makes it impossible to live. Well, if he goes back to Britain, how will he survive effectively? So sanctioning is a very, very serious thing. And I don't know if it's legal. I don't know. I mean, I, I think he'd probably win in a court case. I, I don't know the specifics of it. Um, well, there there had been, um, you know, very few people who, who came to his... Um... Uh, to his defense, but Hitchens is, uh, was one of them, and he Hitchens, was, yeah, Peter Hitchens, I like. He does some really good work. Yeah. yeah, and 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 he said that he doesn't particularly like Graham or his work, but that's not the point here. He yeah. said the point is that this goes against the Bill of Rights. It's it's yeah. basically it goes against the fundamental law of of what the uh, UK is all about, and yeah. and I kind of agree with him on that on that I, point. I, I mean, this, is, this is completely horrific. I completely agree with him. Yeah, um, and that's kind of the game. I mean, he, I think he, the, the reason they're doing, he became quite famous in Britain because I think he interviewed a British prisoner of war or mercenary, whoever it is. I don't want to get yes. involved in that. So there's kind of, I think, lines that it's it's a difficult kind of game that I'm playing, trying to make sure that, and but the rules keep changing, so you don't know. I mean, I'm I'm mm. a professional journalist. I'm an honest man. I, you know, I, I you know, try my best to do. Go for it. Finish what you were saying before. Yeah, and so for journalists like us at the moment, it's difficult to know. The rules keep changing. So sanctioning of Graham Phillips, nobody expected that, but that happened. Alina Lip, of course, a German journalist. Um, facing three years imprisonment in Germany. Her mother has now fled to Crimea as well. I did a story about that. They closed her bank account. Alina's mother, um, actually spending Christmas with them, that they become friends. And, uh, but Alina's mother's a 60-year-old woman. She's a lovely woman. She's a spiritual healer and she works with handicapped children. She's just a lovely woman. And, her, and the German government bank closed her bank account. And she went to the bank manager and they said, well, maybe you can go to the church. I mean, just great. And, and how can they? How can this be legal? How can they do that? And so, you, you know, the, the, the goalposts keep changing. Of course, Julian Assange is in jail. You know, he's crossed too many lines. Um, and so there is a real threat. And and there's a French journalist, Adrian Bouquet, who got uh, his throat slit, stabbed, survived. He says it was assassination attempt by SBU in Turkey. So there's particular real dangers to to, to journalists who who are criticizing the mainstream narrative on Ukraine, yeah. 
And then, of course, the uh, UK officials are uh, uh, basically uh, virtue signaling, saying, "Oh, we stand with a very journalist who is, you know, who is oppressed somewhere." Where in fact they are doing the oppressing, or when the side that they are supporting is doing the oppressing, it goes uh, it goes nowhere. Nobody talks about it. It's it's horrible. And so we basically are. Um, in in a, in a we've we've closed the circle back to the stuff that we started with is you know what is journalism I I believe the journalism um, the 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 point is to challenge is to speak truth to power and is to discover the truth um, but ironically uh, that's exactly the definition of Russian propaganda or disinformation which uh, so I, I did the kind of a deep dive into the New York. Times uh, covering of uh, of this, and I found one article that they wrote in 2016 about about Russian disinformation, and uh, and there there is a quote that the purpose of Russian disinformation is to question the official narrative. And I thought to myself, well, hold on a second. I thought that the purpose of journalism is to question the official narrative, because otherwise, like, what are we doing? If 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 like, is journalism just the PR, which seems like it is now? Uh, but, uh, yeah, so we, we can, I guess we can close on this, maybe some final comment on that, um, just to wrap it up. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are some fantastic journalists in the, in the mainstream. Noam Chomsky talked about, um, the best journalists playing it, playing the mainstream like a violin, knowing when you can get certain stories out. And so you do see some really good pieces in the mainstream, um, but increasingly, other journalists. That's why I'm working for the Iranians. You have to, if you if you're critical of uh, Western imperialism or neoliberal capitalism, you essentially have to work for foreign outlets or try to make it as an independent. And it's very very difficult to make it as an independent. It's a few people with millions of subscribers or Glenn Greenwald, people like that. Uh, but it's very very difficult to to make it independently. So that's why I think it's important. And on Twitter now, there's some fantastic citizen journalists. All the rest of it, they're they're fantastic. Um, but yeah, and, I mean, there is Russian, a lot of my work, I have to be very careful not to publish any Russian propaganda. You know, there are Russian people pushing stories on me. Most of them are true. Um, but other ones I see on the internet, I think, is this Russian propaganda? I have to be very careful to really, to really not push any, so to find out the facts of stories before I publish, uh, and to find various sources and evidence, um, but yeah, I mean, is Russia today putting out propaganda or are they just putting out stories that, that contradict the other side? So I think it's important we look at a wide, wide variety of sources in order to find the, find the truth. What's happening in Iran right now? You know, the Iranians have invited me to Iran. I've never been there. But um, the Western media is pushing one line. Uh, Iranian media is pushing another. Where's the truth? I'm not really sure. Um, but it's important to listen and, and really just use your own sort of mind of figuring out who the truth is and understanding context to, to, to situations is very important as well. Um, otherwise you can be easily led. But it's important people like yourself and all these things, particularly now, I think the mainstream is losing so much faith, uh, faith of people. I think we always sort of say that, but I think particularly now we're seeing more and more people turn. This is why Elon Musk bought Twitter. Twitter, I mean, when I do my research or reporting on stories, I have to report in the whole of Ukraine. The, the newsroom asks me, what's going on, what's happened in Ukraine? I'm not there. So I have to rely on sources. Increasingly, I used to apply, rely on mainstream sources, but increasingly as this war's going on, I simply can't even trust them for basic facts. And so this is why Elon Musk has bought Twitter, because 
you know, I look for, at mainstream sources, I look for their websites, but increasingly I, I use Twitter as a news source. I have you know, fantastic citizen journalists or independent journalists who I go directly to them for their information and for comment as well. This is why Elon Musk has bought Twitter and, and we're seeing a, a shift away from mainstream sources to the likes of Twitter, which has its benefits, but also its perils. The drawback, of course, is that it, it, it is, is the question of trust, right? And the question of uh, verifiability. And yes, absolutely, there, there, there are. But, but there are also, you know, unreliable people. And it used to be that a brand name stood for something, or at least in, you know, in my perception anyway. And, I, and, and now I'm revisiting all of that because the, for me, as, as soon as you lose trust and the mainstream media lost trust in my eyes, now what I'm catching myself is that now I don't trust them in anything. Now I have to I have to question literally everything that they do, of course. So even when they do report like proper stuff, I already don't trust that, and and I go like maybe that's a lie. So so that's that's a it's a very dangerous thing. So um, I I do agree with your point about the uh, citizen um, journalism, I, but but then again, is the how how do you build trust, and is there some possibility of people? to band together to create an alternative you know an organization where there there is some you know some is maybe a really good independent journalist come together and and are able to kind of share their trust around the trust that they've built with their audiences around and but there needs to be also some verifiability and then you go need to go into that uh, editorial process as well so you, you sort of need to uh, in my opinion, you need to rebuild some of the structures that are in in the mainstream media, um, but in a in a you know with with more trust. I don't know. I don't have solutions either. My my solution, is, as I said before, is to um, uh, diversify a set of sources, go to the quasi enemy sources as well, and look at how they how people are reporting on uh, the same thing. And if there is a lot of, like, if all the sources agree on something, I know that, that is true because at least everybody agrees on it. So it's fine. And then the interpretation, well, then this is where I think critical thinking is important. And that's what I'm trying to share. Is I'm, I'm, not try, I'm not trying to share like this happened. What I'm trying to share is I'm trying to uh, tell people how I approach this and say, okay, these are the sets of questions that I ask. And then if you ask this set of questions, like who benefits from this, right? Who had the... Uh, you know, the means, motive, and opportunity to do something. It's like um, back to, you know, there was a story about, uh, which I will publish because I did a kind of a deep dive into uh, who shot at the um, uh, humanitarian corridors in Mariupol. Uh, Russians were saying Ukrainians were shooting. Ukrainians were saying Russians were shooting. Okay, both of them had means and the opportunity. Both of them had the guns and they were there. Uh, so then the only thing is like, look at, let's look at the motive. And then I, I, I say, okay, well, this is what I... Like if I ask these questions, this is what I come come up with. What do you think? Uh, and I think that ultimately, um, the maybe I will leave another one question for you. So ultimately, the only reason, the only way to understand or to get at at a truth is to be asking these questions. I feel really weird, and and I feel that it's very dangerous, especially for the governments, to start instituting. Uh, the you know uh, disinformation fighting agency you know effectively a censorship is like if if the government starts telling us what is true what's not true 
I think this is really, really wrong. Or, or you know, the uh, New York Times uh, basically promote themselves as the truth, right? I think education of citizenry and teaching people critical thinking is the only way. Like, first of all, everybody, as we said, everybody has biases. Everybody lies, whether it's a lie of omission or a lie of commission, and maybe it's just omission. Okay, everybody makes mistakes as well. I think the only way for the citizens not to be fooled is if they're well-educated. Um, we cannot have censorship and, and these entities that would tell us what the truth is. I think that's really dangerous. And I think that's not solving the problem. It creates other problems, much worse problems, in my opinion. Um, so I, and that will be it from me. And to, if you have want to add something to that. and Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I mean, in my reporting, I... <laughs> It annoys me that I do my best when I don't know something. The example you used just then, who's shelling the humanitarian corridors, I have my suspicions, but if I don't have the, the evidence for it, I try to give both sides and try to explain, but without saying this is definitely what's going on. Uh, because I don't have the evidence to do that. I have my suspicions, I can give the context, but I, it's not for my job to say this is definitely what's happening. When, I don't, when I'm standing there with the bodies there and I live under the shelling of Ukrainian shelling, I, I can see, I can tell you what's happening, and that's. But so much of the time, you know, I never went. Noam Chomsky famously said, "You can tell it's a provoked invasion because the Western media always refer to it as an unprovoked invasion." And you're right. There's a lot of um, media outlets trying to force the, these things down people's throats, which I don't think is acceptable. If you don't know what's going on, don't you know? Just say that. And journalists never say we don't really know, but. This is why I think it's it's really up to, and we can complain about propaganda all we want, but actually there's no excuse not to be well informed. You know, you you have all these wonderful main, uh, alternative outlets. You know, you can listen to me, you can listen to other people. The other, you, there are so many outlets. There's actually no excuse. So you actually have to ask yourself: Is it actually the government's fault, or is it people's fault? Obviously, it's a difficult question there. But there is, you know, we don't live under totalitarian states. Some journalists are getting killed or imprisoned, but some aren't. So the, the opportunities are there, and that's why the work that you're doing and others are doing is so important of, of really trying to, to, to open people's minds up. And the information is out there if people want to look. To end on a positive note. Okay, Johnny. Yes, I, I agree. Let's end on a positive note. Uh, I, I think we've sold it. <laughs> I, um, I thank you so much for agreeing to this. And um, uh, Let's uh, let's keep in touch and all all the best uh, to your work. I I will take a while to publish this. I think what we've done and I tried to because I know that it takes me a long time to edit and I try to transcribe as well um, and that that takes even longer. Uh, but therefore, I focus on more um, evergreen topics. So I think this is going to age well. It's 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 uh, we, we talked about how to approach. Uh, things in general and how to look at um, how to critically evaluate information and I thank you so much again and we can wrap it up thanks Andre thanks for having me really great chats and uh, speak to you soon I'm sure thank you thanks <laughs>